The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. Welcome to Davenant Discussions. This is lecture one of three by Michael Spangler concerning the work of Peter van Maastricht. Before I give you some introductory remarks about that, I wanted to let you know about Davenant House. At Davenant House in Landrum, South Carolina, director Michael Hughes hosts throughout the year a series of talks called Davenant Discussions. These are open to anyone in the region who would like to come. The format usually involves a set of three talks on a given topic with an extended Q&A after each talk. The Hughes serve up a delicious meal in the lunch hour before the talks continue into the afternoon. So if you're interested and would like more information on future Davenant discussions or any other events at Davenant House, go to davenanthouse.org. Now, in this set of talks by Michael Spangler, he presents an overview of the content in Peter van Maastricht's Theoretical Practical Theology. It's a long, large, and multi-volume work which uh, has remained in Latin until just uh, the past couple of years. Uh, it, and this is important because Peter van Maastricht is a uh, significant theologian, Dutch theologian from the 17th century. He wrote theoretical practical theology for his students and for the training of pastors, and it continues to be a uh, useful and very practical work. It is apparently is sold quite well. It functioned for quite some time as a kind of a summa of systematic and uh, theology in the Reformed tradition. Maastricht's work is a bold defense of the Reformed Protestant teachings, and notable is Maastricht's clear articulation of theology proper in the lines of classical theism. There are two volumes available now of theoretical practical theology. The first one is titled Prolegomena. The second one is titled Faith in the Triune God. The remaining volumes uh, are being translated from the Latin and expected in the next few years. Michael Spangler is assistant translator to Todd Rester, and we were very pleased to have Pastor Spangler lecture about the content of these first couple of volumes. Uh, this is Michael Spangler. Lecture one is entitled Theoretical Practical Theology and the Bible, Maastricht's Life, His Theoretical Practical Theology, and its chapter on Scripture. All right, friends, good morning. It's great to see you. Glad to be here. Thank you, Michael, for welcoming us, welcoming me. Um, it's really my joy to be here and introduce you to a man who's become a dear friend and father in the faith to me, Petrus von Maastricht, and his work, The Theoretical Practical Theology, which I get to participate in together with editor Joel Beakey and translator Todd Rester. I am the assistant editor and translator on this project. And as we go, you'll get to hear more about my work, and I'd be glad if you have any questions to ask. I want you to know about myself that first and foremost, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved me, gave himself for me. 
and he gave me his word and I love it. And my first motivation here is to defend this word, which is not just the perfect rule of faith in life, but mine as well. And I trust yours too. And I trust that's your motivation to be here too, that we might grow in Christ. But I'm also a minister. Uh, the word is the perfect rule for my faith in life, but also for my ministry. It's a ministerial handbook. And so I have a great professional interest as well in speaking of the word and how we might defend it as Maastricht will, will teach us. So you're not disappointed. I want you to know who I'm not. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. Some people online will call me Dr. Spangler. I just laugh, just laugh. Um, I have been interested in PhD study. I can't say I'll never do it, but I'm not doing it now. Um, I'm also not an expert on Van Maastricht. You can ask me questions about his biography, and I'll probably tell you, read the biography. It's in the first volume. It's quite good, and it's written by the world expert on Van Maastricht, Adrian Neely, who's a great man, and he'd be the one to talk to. I'll try to tell you what you need to know for today. I'm not an expert on Reformed scholasticism either. I do have to have some knowledge of it for my work, and I'm growing in my knowledge of it. But I probably won't be able to answer questions if you have them about what other people who are contemporary thought. I can give you some broad outlines, but that's about it. What I do have expertise in is Latin. I was a Latin teacher, and that's why I was put on this project to help with the translating. And I've become an expert in Maastricht's theology and the contents of this book, particularly the theoretical practical theology. I brought my editions of the two volumes. I saw some of you did. Good work. And we'll have occasion to open them, especially the first volume today. Um, before we get started, are there any questions about me or my work or anything you want to know before we dive right in? Could you say something about you're, you're a pastor and your church? I think the Yes, first, I'd be glad to. For those that are listening with audio, they would be interested to know your background and then where you went to your education and your family, if you want to say something about that. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I know all these folks here, so I'm <laughs> grateful you asked. So I'm a minister of the gospel at Providence Presbyterian, or OPC Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, my fellow minister, Ari, and my own pastor is here with us today. Our elder is Shane Anderson, who couldn't be with us today, but wanted to. And uh, we're, a, we're a sweet body of Christ there. I love serving the people. I do this translating work as the largest part of my ministry, but I also preach and teach there regularly. I'm a member of the session. I do pastoral care together with Ari and Shane. And so that's my life. Um, I was trained at Greenville Seminary, just down the road here in South Carolina. And I also went to Davidson College in North Carolina. And that's where I learned Latin. Anything else? Good, thank you for asking. <laughs> oh, long before I was born. <laughs> no, it's been, it's been active for years. I'd say at least a decade. I've come in a little bit late in the game. But there's been a lot of work done before I even started. Uh, the first volume was published last year. Yes? What was the most helpful aspect of the two volumes that you have tra helped translate and what was the most helpful um, in, uh, in your administrative theology? That's a big question, Dale. <laughs> what, what was the, what are some of the, most, the most helpful? Well, I'm going to get to it in this first lecture, but it was probably his definition of theology itself, that is the doctrine of living for God through Christ. That was a great help to me and remains. All right. 
so that we might grow in our love for the word and our knowledge of it, and also participate in a little bit of what Van Maastricht himself would have done in his life, we're going to sing a portion of Psalm 119. You may want to care for the recording. If anyone's listening, I'm sorry you have to listen to me in singing. But this is, as some of you may recognize, a tune that goes all the way back to Geneva. This is from the Genevan Psalter, which was originally in French. And this tune was carried on to all the other versions of the Genevan Psalter. There was an early translation into Dutch made in 1582. And this would have been what Van Maastricht, even 100 years later or more, would have been singing in his church. Now, for your sake and mine, we're going to sing it in English. But I'd like to teach it to you. I'll teach you this one now. I'll do it line by line with you. We'll sing it once through. And then after our three sessions, each of our three sections, we'll sing one section of this psalm. So repeat, I'll sing the line and you sing it after me. How blessed are those upright in their way. Together. How blessed are those upright in their way. Good. Listen now. Who keep the Lord's decrees with dedication. Who keep the... Let's start again. Who... Who keep the Lord's decrees with dedication. Good. Listen. And in their walk of life his law obey. And in their walk of life his law obey. Good. How blessed are those who with determination, how, how blessed are those who with determination wholeheartedly seek him by night and day, wholeheartedly seek him by night and day. And look to him for guidance and salvation. And look to him for guidance and salvation. Good. Sing this whole thing with me. How blessed are those upright in their way. Who keep the Lord's decrees with dedication and in their walk of life his law obey. How blessed are those who with determination wholeheartedly seek him by night and day and look to him for guidance and salvation. Amen. 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 I'd like to read to you from the Word of God a section that Maastricht himself will be teaching to us. I've chosen today to read from the King James Bible so that you can have a Bible in English from the very period in which Maastricht lived. This Bible would have been well used and loved by English speakers in Maastricht's day. 
And Maastricht himself was very strongly influenced by English-speaking Reformed Christians, particularly William Ames. Might get a chance to speak of that later, but he quotes William Ames at length and who would have read this Bible as well. So 2 Timothy 3 is what I'll be reading. I'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll have a chance this morning to focus on the last two verses. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study here today from your word as it's taught to us from your servant, Van Maastricht. We pray that you'd be with us, that as I speak and all of us together learn, we would learn from Christ himself, who by his Holy Spirit bore all the prophets along of old as they wrote these words for our instruction. We pray, Lord, that we learn not only to believe your word, but to obey it and to defend it so that Christ, the great word of God, that he would receive all the glory. Thank you for the Davenant Institute. Thank you for Michael and his family and their service to us and having us here. We pray you'd bless all of their ministry and make it very fruitful for the kingdom of God. And bless this morning and afternoon, we pray for Christ's glory. Amen. Let's begin with the man himself, Petrus van Maastricht. He's sometimes spoken of as being German-Dutch because he was born in Germany. He spent a lot of his time in Germany, part of his education, but made it to the Netherlands eventually, and his longest part of his life was spent teaching at the University of 
Utrecht. Ari could pronounce that better for you. <laughs> but there is where he spent most of his ministry in the Netherlands. So it's right to see him as a Dutch man. He is Dutch by background. The reason his family was in Germany was because they lived in the southern Netherlands in a town called Maastricht. And they, having the family name Scherning before, had to flee because of persecution from Spanish papists, as he'd call them. And their family, when they fled, changed their name to remember their homeland. So he became Van Maastricht. Their family became Van Maastricht, and that's who he is. Born in 1630, and that should give you enough background. Again, if you want more details, there is a very fine biography in the first volume. It's quite detailed. Uh, as I said, he was educated in many places. There's a debate whether or not he made it to England and studied. Perhaps he did. But it was very common in those days for men to study in more than one place and to travel all over Europe to go to all the best schools and split up their education in that way in different places. And he did the same. And um, he did study at Utrecht where he ended up teaching. And his most famous teacher was Gisbertus Vucius, sometimes Vucius or Fucius. Um, it's a little bit difficult <laughs> in English. But the man was the father of Dutch practical theology. He was a representative of a movement that was going on at the same time in, as the Puritan movement in England, and it had many of the same emphases. They wanted theology to be practical. Theology was for the Christian life. And Vucius was the great academic exponent of that way of life, that way of doing theology. He was very academic. Vucius is probably one of the most learned men who's ever lived. If you read what he's written, which is all in Latin at this point, some of it's in English, small portions, you'll find him to be overwhelmingly educated. <laughs> he was able to cite texts from everywhere. And you see a little bit of that in Van Maastricht. Van Maastricht is not quite the mind that Vucius was. He's not as great in stature as Vucius, but he was able in his theoretical practical theology to distill and simplify a lot of the main emphases of his teacher in a way that makes Van Maastricht more accessible than Vucius. And I think the church today will gain much more directly from Van Maastricht than from Vucius himself, though behind Van Maastricht is his great teacher. And it's right that we would want to study Vucius. And there are some efforts to translate the works of his teacher as well underway. That's regarding his background in education. Are there any questions that might be pertinent for today or that you're interested in to ask? Feel free to interrupt at any time with questions. The way I'll do this is give 30, 40 minutes of lecture in which you can ask any time, and I'll stop sometimes for questions. But then we'll have discussion afterward, and I expect lots of questions. So already be thinking and writing down if you have anything. Focusing on Van Maastricht's work, he was in most of his life, what we would know as a seminary professor. He taught theology at the University of Utrecht. Um, he, I believe, also in his life taught Hebrew. Uh, as was more common, there was not necessarily a strict division in the work of seminary professors, but he taught theology and in particular practical theology. He was also a preacher and a catechist. Like many of the great teachers, Vucius himself, he spent a large part of his life teaching simple Christians. It was not only training ministers of the gospel or future seminary professors. He, his life involved frequent catechetical instruction to young people. A great example is he speaks, I believe it's in his 
book on preaching of how children, when they're giving catechetical sermons, should be expected to be able to repeat them. Not word for word, but be able, through a care, the careful outline that the minister has given, to be able to recite the bones, the skeleton of the sermon. That's not theoretical. He was doing that week by week in the churches. He, um, the TPT, the Theoretical Practical Theology, I can need the Latin title there on the outline, it was a work of his lifetime. It began through encouragement of friends as a small book called the Prodromus, the Forerunner. And it was a very small version of the TPT with just a few portions of what became the large, larger one. And then he made a first edition, which was significantly expanded into the second edition, which is what we are working with. That second edition was published in 1698 and then immediately in 1699. It's basically, this, it is the same edition. And it was reprinted in a few times later into the early 18th century, even after Maastricht had died. There was never so far an English translation, except for his chapter on regeneration, which because of some very severe controversy in the North American church about regeneration, it was translated, and I've checked the translation, I think it's good, and it's been published and republished, and I think it's called a treatise on regeneration in English. If you want an excellent treatment of regeneration, it, it really is worth reading, and you'll find it remarkably contemporary, and it's dealing with some thorny problems that still give people trouble about the doctrine today. Just for a preview, he defends very powerfully the traditional biblical doctrine of immediate regeneration. The regeneration is, that, is without means. You can't take a dead man by the hand and raise him to life. Only the Spirit of God without means does that work. And it's, it's a very good explanation of that from Scripture. So that's the TPT. He wrote a number of other works in his life. The most famous one, and probably the one for which he was most famous in his day, was what he affectionately calls our gangrene. <laughs> it's because the title, the title was the gangrene or perhaps the cancer, the, but the gangrene of the Cartesian innovations. He was a powerful opponent of Cartesianism and its principle of methodological doubt. Descartes believed that all knowledge begins with doubt. And Man Maastricht rightly saw that that is entirely opposed to not only all Christian faith, but all reasonable thought, which begins from things that are certain and then goes from there through correct logic to, th to other things that are certain. Truth is, it begins with certainty and ends with it. Descartes said exactly the opposite. And it cut against all of theology he saw it as a gangrene that was slowly eating away at Reformed theology. There were many people from the Reformed Church who were taken away by Cartesianism. And he saw this and was sounding the alarm. Sadly, it proved in his life that he was somewhat of a Cassandra on the walls of Troy, doomed to be a true prophet but never believed, because Europe was becoming then what it is today. It was unbelief was beginning to win the day. He saw it and he named it in, very, in a very able way. 
And if you read his Gangrene of the Cartesian Innovations, it also would appear to you very contemporary in its addressing the foundations of modern unbelief. That book has not been translated, but it is a useful book. You get a lot of it in the TPT. You're going to see a, a lot when you read it written against Cartesianism in particular. And then also two other books addressing movements in his day that are relevant for today. One was he wrote a book against a man named Meyer. And Meyer had argued in brief that the, the only infallible interpreter of scripture was reason. That human reason was the judge of theology. It would read scripture, but reason, the bar of reason was the final appeal when it came to theology. Maastricht understood as well that that was, in principle, unbelief. And he addressed it very ably in that book in which he, he put philosophy in its place. And the whole thrust of the book is that philosophy is a real and proper discipline, but it too must submit to scripture as a handmaiden must submit to the queen. So he articulates what really is the, the classical and Christian understanding of the relationship of faith and reason there. We'll get to more of that this morning. Another book he wrote was, uh, he called it a, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the English, you know, this is a problem when you earn Latin all day. Um, yes, yeah, something like a congratulatory advice to a man named Balthasar Becker. I don't know if you ever heard the name Balthasar Becker. But Becker wrote a book in which he argued, again, to put it very simply, because these are difficult issues, that witchcraft and magic are most, and demons are mostly, if not entirely, fake. Now, this is something that's taken for granted today, but Maastricht said, no, that's not true. It's not true. In fact, when you read in the scriptures, the activity of demons is real. Demons are real. Satan is real. And though, yes, many old ladies are said to be doing magic when they're really just silly, or people are not right in their heads, and that's not, they're not necessarily witches, that doesn't mean there's not real magic or witchcraft, which, as Maastricht explains, is, whether it's explicit or not, men in covenant with devils to be able to do things that they couldn't do otherwise. And he speaks then of the reality of witches. It's a very interesting book if you consider the time. It was written in the same decade as the Salem Witch Trials. There was an international obsession, we can call it, with witchcraft and demonic activity. I'm convinced, I've got to write the preface for volume three, and I really have to think about these things and be able to say them well, but I'm convinced so far that Maastricht and with him a man like Cotton Mather, they are balanced in a world that, in a certain sense, rationalism on the one hand and uh, just fear-mongering on the other, that a world that had gone crazy about witchcraft, I think they were able to be balanced, to realize it is a great trouble and a great sin, and the church and the state need to deal with it, but on the other hand, to avoid the extremes. And you can see how that's very similar to his book against Cartesianism, against this man named Meyer. All of it is a way of attacking the new rationalism that was coming to be the norm in philosophy. 
that human reason is the final, has the final say in everything, and therefore anything that's not reasonable, like the activity of a Satan you can't see, must not be true. And you see then, Maastricht is quite relevant for our life today. Regarding his significance, Maastricht was not particularly well known in his day except for his philosophy and his dealing with Cartesianism. He was well respected even by Roman Catholics for his defense of Christian principles against Cartesianism. But he wasn't necessarily well known as a theologian. He had some students who remembered him, especially in Scotland, but it doesn't seem many remembered him in the Netherlands. He came into his own in all places of here in North America, among the North American Puritans. So um, I have some quotes to read to you. This should make you happy that you're here learning about the uh, theoretical, practical theology. Because these men that I'm going to quote to you, they would encourage you to, uh, to do what you're doing today. Uh, oh boy. Okay, I'll read that later. I wrote the page number, and yet I can't read it because I wrote it in my handwriting. I know where I'm looking for, so if you give me a moment. Yes, here it is. All right. In New England, <laughs> writing to Jacob Wendell in May 1720, a Dutch merchant in Albany, New York, the learned pastor of Boston, this is uh, Cotton Mather, Cotton Mather, requested 12 copies of the TPT, noting, the world has never yet seen so valuable a system of divinity. Tis orthodox, tis concise, tis complete. In one word, it is everything. And these two volumes, we're doing seven, but the original was two. I have a funny story about that. Um, our young ministers would have a rich library Happy would our churches be if they were fed from the stores and with the admirable spirit of the most vital piety all along breathing therein, which are to be found in Dr. Maastricht. Beautiful. Mather would repeat the generous praise of the TPT six years later in his handbook for students studying for the ministry, 1726, stating, But after all, there is nothing that I can with so much plerophory, that is full assurance, recommend unto you as a Maastricht. His Theologia, Theologia Theoretico Practica. You know what? I'm the editor. That was probably a typo, as a Maastricht. But maybe it was just quoting from Mather himself. That a minister of the gospel may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work and in one or two quarto volumes enjoy a well-furnished library. I know not that the sun has ever shone upon a humane composure that is equal to it. And then the other one, which we put on the back of the book, and we really owe Jonathan Edwards quite a few royalties for this one. He wrote to a friend, but take Maastricht for divinity in general, doctrine, practice, and controversy, or as a, an universal system of divinity and it is much better than Turretin or any other book in the world excepting the Bible, in my opinion. Well, I can't say any more than that. <laughs> you can use the initials I-M-O or just, you know, 
No, no. No, he wasn't learned enough to know that one. No. No, he didn't. No, I'm sure it was a humble opinion, but. You tell me about it. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I hope to thank him one day. Um, I do. I would did want to share you though a bit from the funeral oration. Let me not forget my funny story regarding the volumes. So Maastricht, in his introduction, which we published here in English too, he says, "You know, there is a lot. Basically, there is a lot here. I put it in two volumes." The text is very small, but two encouragements. Basically, he says, one, I've saved you money because it could have been three volumes, but it's only two. And if you are young, you have good eyes. And if you're old, you have glasses. <laughs> That's what he said. We have, we've made things a little easier for you in our seven volumes. It also helps us get some out as we go. What I was going to read to you from, though, was the original. Um, we're going till 11.45, correct? Yeah. Is lunch? Oh, thank you. Well then. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll have a little more. We'll have some things to talk about. Um, I also want to read to you from the funeral oration. I found this to be actually so far my favorite part of translating because it's very uh, elaborate and beautiful Latin. We tried to reflect that in English, but we include in here the oration given at Van Maastricht's own funeral. And it's got some very beautiful praise of the man. It tells us on the one hand, I remember uh, testifying to the man's godliness and piety that his servants would testify that he would rather miss a meal than miss his morning devotions or his devotions. And that was given as an example that this man was the man he taught others to be. But this is from that as well, speaking of the book. He said, I confidently affirm concerning this corpus that it has been so logically arranged, that it is so pregnant and full with such a great weight of material, that it is packed with such great and diverse erudition, that I do not know whether in all the world there could ever exist anything more accurate and elaborate. And if someone should attempt to deny this, Oh, how he would scratch his poor empty head and gnaw his nails if he were told to attempt something similar or greater, to put such an unfair burden on his own shoulders. So that should hopefully encourage you to read the book. Are there any questions regarding Van Maastricht himself and his background before we speak of the book itself? Yes. Why is it then that if he wasn't as large in the Netherlands in his own home country across the pond, why is it that he made such an impact on the New England Puritans in particular? Mm. I really couldn't tell you. I can't think right now if there is an explanation of that in the biography. That would be the question to ask Neely, because Neely's not only an expert in the Maastricht, but also in Jonathan Edwards and the New England Puritans. So I don't think I can tell you. It is interesting to me. Yes. You mentioned uh, one of the works that preceded the TPT was the pro Prodromus, the forerunner. Yeah. Would that be something akin to other systems at the time, whether the concise and the medium size and the larger? Uh, and if so, has that been translated, or is it really just a rough sketch of what he's doing? It's not been translated. It, from what I've seen of it, it is not merely an outline 
it is actually just part of what came. It doesn't have all the topics or even a representation of all the topics. So there was no plan, as far as I know, for this to be the small outline. It's not like the Institutes. It's an unfinished preview. It's the first fruits of what was to come. Yes, Gavin. It may well. One thing that is worth saying as well is uh, there were other good theologies in the Maastricht's day, and others may have made a sincere judgment that there were ones worth reading more, which may be true. I, I don't know. I mean, these men thought otherwise. <laughs> so that's, that's good insight, Gavin. Yep. You mentioned something about a, a connection between aims. Is that something you're going to address in a later lecture? Or? Do you know, I might get to, but it's worth mentioning now. Just to say, one of my troubles as an editor is to know where Ames quotations start and end. <laughs> because sometimes, Maastricht usually cites his sources, but they don't have the same obsession, shall I say, with, with citation as we do today. But he was honest. He was honest and would often, at the end of a paragraph, say, this comes from Ames, or the words are Ames. And then you go look and you say, yeah, he, he quoted. So, but we do have to look. <laughs> We'd have to look. He gladly admits that in many ways, Ames put something so well, there's no point writing it himself. So he just copies it. Yeah, and that's all from the marrow of theology, which was originally Latin, was translated into English. That's a good book. Now, was Ames uh, a contemporary, or did he precede the master? No, preceded, yeah. preceded, uh, died 1633. I know William Twist. Yeah, I'm thinking of Twist. Yeah, I got the wrong, I got the wrong guys. No, it's okay. They're all called William or John. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, or Thomas. Any other questions at this point? All right. Well, now that we've seen such high praise of the book, I think we should dive right in. If you have a copy, you can open it. I I may not turn to pages, but I am going to speak to you about the work as a whole, and then we'll narrow down to. Volume 1, and I'll have a few comments about volumes 2 and 3. We'll conclude within, within about 15-20 minutes by a preview of this doctrine of Scripture, and then that will be our focus for the rest of the day. So the book itself, as I mentioned to some others before we started, it's about a million Latin words long. It was two very thick volumes. I have, I believe it's right here, a sample page if you'd like to see what it would look like. This has been enlarged significantly. It would have been maybe two-thirds the size of this. This is 125% 
of the size. So you can see that. That's a page that I actually have printed for you in English that I'll send, give to you near the end of today. But there's the pay, the, what theology looks like. It's in three large parts. 90% of the book is the first part, and that is the theology, what we might call the systematic theology, in which he follows what you would expect, the, the standard arrangement of the loci of theology from prolegomena to eschatology. Now, when he gets to the end, there's some interesting things. He has within this, near the end, a description of the course of the covenant of grace. It's a tour through the dispensations of the one covenant of grace, not a dispensationalist, but the dispensations of the one covenant of grace through time from Adam to the end of the age. Naturally, in there, it includes a lot of things that aren't in the Bible, like all of church history. So it becomes a great church history under, when he gets into the New Testament. And it's very useful that way. And other experts tell me it's, it's very much the same as Jonathan Edwards. Um, oh, and I forgot the title now. Thank you. History of the Work of Redemption. So that's fascinating. I've not yet read or translated that section. I'm reading a few books ahead of my translating, my editing properly. And I look forward to getting there. That's where he gets into his eschatology as well. Um, that's all the first part, 90% of the book. 10% of the end is the two further parts. First is moral theology, an outline of moral theology, he calls it. It's chiefly a description of the Ten Commandments and the virtues they require and the vices they forbid. The third part is ascetic theology. Now, you shouldn't think monks and Anthony in the desert. Ascetic just means it's the theology of exercise. The image is that of an athlete who needs to train. This is speaking spiritually of the Christian and his training, his exercises of the Christian life. So he takes all those things in the moral theology, the virtues and vices, and shows them, as he says, in complex, as they are molded together in the actions of the Christian life. So he there deals with prayer. He deals with how we love his husbands and wives. How, By the way, the man was single his whole life. He was a bachelor. Um, but we deal there with worship and all manner of practical applications of Christian, the Christian life, dealt with in a very systematic way. So that's it. The reason that these last two parts are only 10% of the book is not because he thinks they only are valued that much. In fact, the great beauty of this large part, the 90%, is that all of it is practical. So in every chapter, there are four sections. Every chapter of this 90%, four sections. There are four parts. There's the exegetical part. Every chapter starts with a text of scripture and with a careful, detailed, analytic outline of that passage in which the basic doctrines to be taught are introduced from that passage. Second is the dogmatic part in which that doctrine then is unpacked in a very systematic way with the light of the rest of scripture and wherever it's appropriate, the light of nature as well. The third section is the elenctic part. If you know Turretin's elenctic theology, this is basically the short version packed into each chapter. All the objections from opponents that then are dealt with carefully. And then fourth, once all these things are taught and defended, application, application, the uses, what this means to the Christian life. So every single chapter has a fourth 
devoted to practice, which is why his last two parts are just outlines. There's not much more to say except to tie it all together in a systematic structure. They really are just outlines. We could print them in outline form. He did. We probably won't, but, but they're, not, they're not full treatments like the 90% is. Any questions on his outline? Yes, Dale. It's not entirely unique. If you look, for example, at Wilhelmus Sabrakel, there's a very similar thrust in the way he does theology, moving from doctrine to practice. It's certainly not unique if you consider sermons of that day. So I can get right into this now. In volume one, one of the first things we have in the beginning is something that he included in both editions of the TPT, is what he called the best method of preaching. It's his little book on preaching. It's been published before by Reformation Heritage Books. We've revised it and put it in this volume, and I recommend this version over it, unless you just want one you can put in your pocket. But this is a good, good version in this, and in that, he articulates his theology of preaching. He speaks of the outline of the sermon, kind of sermons he'd wrote, and lo and behold, it's the same as his theology. He starts with exegesis, moves to doctrine, which sometimes, if it's helpful for the congregation, includes dealing with objections, some sort of elenctics, but that part is mostly left out for sermons, and then practice. He says very plainly in that book, the practice of piety is the soul of the sermon. It's the soul of the sermon. You don't apply the text, you're not preaching. Those are my words, not his. But that's his point, that application is the great goal. The life is the goal of the theology. It is the soul of theology. Um, I like to read to you because this really gives to you a sense of what Maastricht is all about. He wrote this theology largely for preachers so that they learned to preach. I mean, he, he used this as a textbook. This was intended. This is ref, would reflect very much his daily teaching lectures and disputations with his students. Um, he speaks of the practice of piety, which is the soul of the sermon. And he speaks of what a blessing this method he describes brought among the British, whom he very highly values, and our Utrechters. Um, he just speaks very highly of a practical method in which application has the concluding part of a sermon. There's much more to say there, but I don't want to miss other things. Do you have any questions about his doctrine of preaching? Yes. Yes, yeah, so Brockle came out a bit later, but they overlapped. Yep. But in terms of ministry, because Brockle was in Rotterdam, I believe in 1690, around that period, because he has a dispute with the king over Erastianism, and I think he's put out of his pulpit. And you said that, that this is produced in 1698. Do you know of any interface or interaction between the two? I wish I could say I don't. I don't. One detail it reminds me of that I forgot to mention is that the TPT was translated into Dutch in the early 18th century, and it had some readership among non-ministers as well because of that. 
Do you know if any particular seminaries use Van Maastricht as a textbook? Well, apparently they did in New England. <laughs> um, the one, if you're, are you speaking of, of our new version? No, no. The uh, in the Latin. Certainly people read it and yeah. referred to it, but as a, a formal, I know they didn't always have seminaries, especially. I mean, we heard the testimony of Cotton Mather, so there have been times and places where he was recommended to students of divinity. As far as the amount he was using in the classroom, I couldn't say. Couldn't say. I believe we'll see more of it. A good encouragement is if you know Keith Matheson at Re Reformation Bible College, is he has required these first two volumes in his theology classes. All his students are reading it now. I was very pleased to hear that. He's an early adopter. Um, a note, just so you don't get the wrong idea of his method of preaching, it is very methodical, but he says plainly at the end, especially when it comes to long passages, you can be flexible in how these principles are worked out. He's a, he is a reasonable man. Um, let's just talk about this book and what's in it. There are three chapters, The Nature of Theology, Holy Scripture, which will be our subject for later today, and then The Distribution of Theology. I'll knock off distribution. It just explains what I just explained to you, that we start with the teaching and move to the application. We start with doctrine and move to practice. And he cites Paul's words to Timothy as well, that he's not only to teach, but also to exhort. And thus, the teacher of theology is to do the same thing. And he sets up his whole method that way. He speaks, however, in chapter 1, first of the method of theology, and that theology must be methodical, and he talks about what the right method is. And he obeys his own command to be methodical to the T. I have never read a more methodical book. And if you want clear proof of that, you can open the front of this chapter. And he has provided... Too much consternation of translators and editors. A very, very detailed outline, and I'm trying to find it here, of this book. Yes, it's starting on page 47, if you have the book. And it's an outline of the whole work. So if on a break you want to look at this, it's overwhelming. But he, like a good logician in the 17th century, has thought of the entire subject in great detail and has subordinated every point to its proper place. We have, in effect, a ramus tree, but too large to draw as a tree here. If you know anything about ramism, it's okay if you don't, but, but many theologians in this day were obsessed, in a good sense, with making theology very orderly and putting everything in just its right place. And so was he. And you will find that this system, complicated as it is, makes really good sense. It makes really good sense. We start speaking of Scripture, which is the rule of theology. We move to the object of theology, which is God. We move from his essence to his attributes to his persons. We move from there to his works. First of all, the work of creation, culminating in man, and then the covenant of works, and then sin, and then redemption. That's where Christ comes in, and you see on and on. There's just a beautiful sensible outline, and everything finds its place within it. Yes? I know you mentioned you're not an expert in the broader reform scholasticism, uh, but in terms of this, this outline, is there any place that struck you as you were editing it that seemed 
unique in terms of the order. Um, I'm just now I just finished my, my yep. work for Pumps Glasses and for uh, Greenville. Good. And, um, I took that class too. It was a good class. And I was working with Ames and uh, Labius, and there were a couple places like Ames treats saving faith really early in his work versus uh, Labius. Is there anything that caught your eye when doing the editing for the, the, the yes. theology that struck you? Yes. And if you want to read more on it, I'd highly recommend the introduction that I, together with the others, wrote for this volume. Because we talk about how Maastricht is unique, even among his contemporaries, who are putting saving faith first okay, so after follows, the prolegomena. He follows Ames in that then. Yes. He shows what's at stake in this whole method and what the, what the goal is. We're not here just to tell you about God so you can be interested. This is the God in whom you must believe for the salvation of your soul. Right out the gate. That's how he begins. Excellent treatment of saving faith with a very thorough practical part. Peter Thomas wanted to grow up, must first believe that he is. He starts there. That's right. That's right. So, good question. And I remember from my class and others, there, there is some variety within the overall superstructure that is agreed on in theology. There was a basic agreement on the general relationship between faith and reason, the need for method, the basic outlines of the method. That doesn't mean there wasn't diversity in the reform scholastics. All right, good questions. This is going well. All right, let's talk just briefly because these things will help us when we come to Scripture. From his chapter one on the nature of theology, I already spoke of method, and I got a little excited about the method, so let's move on. I told you already about his definition of theology. If you can remember one line from the book, this is the one to remember. That theology is the doctrine of living for God through Christ. I'll say it again. Theology is the doctrine of living for God through Christ. And he defends that at length. And I think it's very good. It's a very good definition. And it's one that was taught to us at Greenville by Ryan McGraw as well. He puts his own additions on it, but the point is exactly the same that we are to be taught so that we might live for God through Christ, through Christ. And that's beautiful. You see all his emphasis about practice included in that same definition as well. But you see also, no, he's giving full credit to the doctrinal nature of theology as well. And if you just open the book, you'll see there's no, there's no lack of instruction. It is properly intellectual in its approach to God. But that said, I need to say a word about the role of natural theology. It's, it can be a hot topic in some places today. It doesn't need to be, but there are some reasons it is. But be that as it may, natural theology is simply the recognition that God has put both inside and outside of man ways to know him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 2, that it's written in the heart of man how we must live. We each have a conscience that excuses and accuses us. The law of God is written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles. And that is real, and it's actually very helpful to us in theology. He outlines why it's helpful, and this will help us directly in our treatment of Scripture. It is helpful in a few different ways. Let me find my exact location here. Yeah, 78. I'm looking at page 78, and I want you to hear just his fourfold use of natural theology. The first use has to do with God, who by means of it renders the impious or impious without excuse. And that's right from Romans 1. On the last day, no one can say, God, I had no evidence. He'd say, 
No, it was all evidence. You had your, the world, you had your heart, you knew me enough to be without excuse. Second, the second has to do with the pagans and atheists who are most powerfully refuted by it. There's a difficulty with this Latin word that's translated either refute or convince. It's hard to know what he means. I tended to tend towards refute when I was editing because convince has the idea of, of, giving, of acquiring some sort of assurance. He's not, he's not saying that pagans and atheists can't be persuaded by rational arguments. He doesn't mean to say that. But he also is not saying that natural theology will give them a saving knowledge of God. That's a very clear statement that he and all Reformed theology and classical Christian theology says with him, natural theology cannot save. The name of Jesus is not written in the heavens. The way of salvation is not evident anywhere except in Scripture. So that is what it doesn't do. But again, what it does do, first, renders the impious without excuse. Second, has to do with pagans and atheists. They're refuted. Third, has to do with revealed theology, that is Bible theology, which at least with regard to us is confirmed to an amazing degree when we discover that it agrees completely with natural theology. This, I'm sure, is a great comfort to you as a Christian. You walk outside and you see what the Bible said is true. We don't prove in the sense that it's the foundation as if nature is somehow superior to Scripture. It's not at all. But it does confirm it, which is a great help to us. And then the fourth has to do with us who root ourselves chiefly in the recognition of revealed truth. We believe in the Bible. That's what Christians are. That we discern that nature itself applauds it, which is basically saying the same thing. You walk outside, the heavens are speaking of the same glory you just read of in Psalm 19. It's a good comfort, really, and a good help. But that should help you as we come into Scripture because he's going to use nature to help us in our discussion of the truth and the divinity of Scripture. Questions on chapters 1, 2, and 3 of that first book, which is of prolegomena. Um, yeah. Um, I, this is the first book and the first volume. Yes. Well, it shouldn't surprise anyone that Van Maastricht is not a Vantillian. <laughs> that would be an anachronism. Calvin was Vantillian. <laughs> no, no. Let's just say that Van Maastricht has a very wholesome view of natural theology, and he uses it freely in defending the Christian faith. And he believes that it is, it is right to expect even natural men to be able to receive natural arguments for God on things that can be naturally known. That is not all things, 
and it's not any saving things. So I think with those careful guards, no one should be opposed to what he's saying. I don't think it'd be profitable to get into the full debate about Ventilianism here. But even there, it's not a generic theism that it's often charged with, would you say? Oh, that's completely unfair. No, if you read his volume two, you know, it is true that only certain things can be known about God in nature. It is true. We can't know God's persons from nature, for example. And that's one of the glories of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's entirely revealed. It's in that sense a mystery. And that is God's glory. He's the God who conceals himself. Um, and it's our glory that he's shown us that, which we couldn't know from nature. But that doesn't mean we're looking at a different God when we're speaking of what is known about the true God from nature, or that Plato, for that matter, is talking about a different God. He's talking about the true God with some falsehood. But what he says is true is true of the true God. And Maastricht even is willing, in a limited sense, to extend that to polytheist pagans, who in their conception of deity has still have some things right. They don't have the unity of God right, which is a, a pretty big mistake. I mean, it's a, terribly, it's a terribly big mistake that ruins everything. But that doesn't mean that all they say is wrong. A great illustration of this, you'll find this in the, in the, if I'm not mistaken, in his funeral oration, it's very common in high poetic diction of Christians in this era, that they freely use pagan tropes to talk about the true God. They'll use the name Jove, for example, to speak of God, of the true God. They'll use titles for Jupiter to speak of the true God. They sometimes, I, it's crazy, I don't even know if I would do it in their age, but they'll use language of multiple gods to speak of the deity. They're doing it in an artistic way, borrowing from you know, classical models, but they're not doing it in a way that at all, at least in their minds, affirms paganism. It's simply a recognition that with all their failures, even the pagans saw some things and they're really following the Apostle Paul in that. He speaks that way to the men in Lystra in Acts 14, especially in the Areopagus, the Mars Hill in Acts 17. He quotes their own poets to show them that they do indeed know this unknown God, enough that they ought to seek him. It's funny that you say that because uh, in his book, The Death of the City, Francis Schaeffer notes something similar, which distances himself from uh, the Van Til Van Til cohorts. It's, yeah. it's pretty interesting. And my, my desire, I'm, I'm not a Ventilian, and I've mastered to help me not be, so I'll say that very plainly. But my desire is along the lines of Maastricht to simply teach the positive use of natural theology, which I think will really help melt away all the debates. If we just teach it very plainly and from Scripture, what natural theology is and does, at the end of the day, I don't know who could be opposed. In fact, I don't think most Ventilians are opposed to the right use of natural theology. They have their own way of explaining it, which has its troubles, but, but I hope we could all agree. And I think in some sense we have as confessional Presbyterians, those of us who are, because our own statements of faith, they reflect this wholesome use of the light of nature, which is basically what we're talking about. You know, natural theology is not in conflict with what God is doing in the world to draw people to himself. I think, right. you know, I don't know if this is unique to Thomas. I think others have used this, this phrase of preambula fide. Yes. And so that, that's probably a, a better way, it's probably helpful to bring 
our understanding of national theology in, in connection with that concept. I agree. I yeah, I, I think preparatory is fine as long as it's rightly understood. We're not teaching a sort of false preparationism. Nature won't regenerate you. But we are understanding that as far as the equipping of the mind to believe the truth of Scripture, nature is extraordinarily helpful. And that it even has in itself a call to God. It will point to the end that all men must go to. It cannot show the way to get there. And that's right from Augustine. If you read the Confessions, he says exactly that. And he treats in his mind Neoplatonism as his means of coming to Christ. For He would explain it in that same way. He did. I just read this with the young people in our church. And it, it's quite profound. He's, he's the first person to tell you without the name of Jesus, there's no hope. But he recognizes how God used the Neoplatonists to send him, or at least to point him to the right end, the glory of God. And Christ then showed him the way to get there. Boethius did the same thing in prison. Hmm. Proving the Christian worldview using the Platonic categories. Yeah. And it can be a help. There are obviously dangers. But Maastricht is so helpful because as I just explained, and I hope this encourages all of you, he was the opponent of rationalism. There are some who wrongly describe scholasticism, whether medieval or reformed, as rationalism. But that is completely unfair. At the least, they should admit that men like Maastricht saw themselves as, as strong opponents of rationalism. They define their entire lives against rationalism. And so I think we need to be more careful at, at the least. He wrote three books against <laughs> rationalism. I mean, four if you count the TBT. So. That's right. It's like any more than being human makes one a humanist, or being feminine makes one a feminist. Uh, oh, yeah, um, that's true. Uh, so it's true. Yeah, it's just that. I think that's helpful. Yeah, I do think that's helpful. Um, this is great. We're mixing in the discussion, so I don't need to leave a half hour for discussion at the end. I'm, I'm pleased. Is um, anything before we move on? I would like to get to a bit of scripture before we have lunch. Okay, I just want you to know what's coming so you can be excited. Volume two is out, and this one is the big one. It's big, but we've made it so that you can read it even without high-powered glasses. Some of you may need regular glasses. But I recommend it, volume two. Again, it goes from God's existence to his attributes to his persons and sets us up then for, excuse me, volume three, which will be the works of God and the fall of man. It'll be Maastricht's own book three and four of the part one. And I'm working on that now. I'm in the midst of it. It's awesome. This is where that excerpt on regeneration. Nope, that's, that's in the next one. Sorry, I'm so excited. Uh, book, it's in book five. Yes, I think you're right, book five. Um, I get my books confused because I'm reading in one book. I think I'm in book five. And I'm translating now in book. I just started, I'm just finishing book three which is on the works of God. I'm doing the chapter on the covenant of works now, the covenant of nature, as he prefers to call it, but he affirms that the phrase covenant of works as well. Uh, but this is an excellent book on God. And if you know anything about what's going on in the reform world now, this is the book for the times. 
So read it for the good of your soul and the good of the church. If you're going to be a minister, I think you should read this book. It's timely and good. And it puts this right use of natural theology in a practical example that I think will prove it, it will make it endearing for you. You'll see how it works in practice. He begins, after that chapter on saving faith, addressing atheists and proving the, the uh, existence of God. Unlike in his other chapters where he starts with scripture and then goes to reason for the proofs, he flips it because he says wisely, and we'll get to this later, atheists ridicule testimonies, whether of Christians or of God himself in the scripture. So why start there? They won't even listen to you. Start with what they know. And he says it this way. If they admit that the world is real, then you've won. <laughs> he says, if they don't admit the world is real, well, you can't talk to them. <laughs> so don't bother. I'm just fools. No, no use. But if they admit the world is real, then, well, from that starting point, we can prove God. And we do. We do. Volumes 3 and three through 7, so we've got, I'll read it so I don't get messed up. Uh, Dr. Beakey, in his introduction to this first volume, told us what's going to come. Three is the works of God in the fall of man. Four is redemption in Christ. Five, the application of redemption and the church. And that's where his um, ecclesiology is. And then six, the covenant of grace. That's that long one of the dispensations of the covenant I told you about. And then seven will be parts two and three, the morality and piety. All right. Any questions? I've given you the whole TPT there. Yes, Brendan. So, uh, volume two is already out. Uh, if the publisher is allowing you to make estimates, I don't want to put you in the box. Volume three, are we expecting it? 2020? Well, let me say this. The publisher's waiting on me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can tell you, I'm probably going to finish volume three the middle of next year. There's more work needed after that. I would hope we'd have it out next year. I have learned in this process that it's always later than you expect. <laughs> Book publishing is far more complicated than you would have ever thought. But we're going to get it out by God's grace. And then I would say give it at, at least a year, maybe two for each volume after that. I think it's safe to say we'll be done within the next decade. Could you just give us a, like a, just a little keyhole uh, look at what that process looks like that, that's, yeah that's always sure to me like from uh, you know from idea concept to you know right there between two covers just right because it is complex and you know there's so many errors that can happen from point a to point z yeah well i'll tell you it looks very boring it's me sitting in a chair and moving my fingers but as far as what's going on, on the screen it's actually quite exciting so I've been given a translation by Todd Rester. But, but even before that, Sorry? though, it's the decision to, like, say, Vodius or however you pronounce it, yep. it hasn't, you know, much of his work has been left untranslated. Oh. And mm -hmm. yet it's, it, why? You know, why, why do people, why, oh, why no, choose? Because Jonathan Edwards didn't tell us Vodius <laughs> was the best book ever written. So in some other words, what I'm saying is that there's a, there's a conversation that happens somewhere that says, you know, we're going to put time and effort into translating this versus that. That's right. So were you, were you involved in anything like that? I sure wasn't. No, I, I came in almost a decade after that, those conversations. Um, all I can tell you is they have known what I've tried to share with you, the value of this book, the historic testimony of this book, but also the relative brevity of this book. 
I mean, a million words is not too much for all that he covers. Or all that doctrine in practice, nolinctics, and the whole compass of theology, it, it's pretty brief. And he labors to be brief. You see that in a number of places. So it's good that way. Vutius is not brief. It's not, his strength was not concision in the slightest. But Master really is good that way. I think that's one of the great advantages of Calvin's Institutes as well. And you know that if you know Calvin, that was one thing he labored for. So that really recommends the book as a first translating opportunity. And I think it was appealing to the Dutch Reformed Translation Society that this man is Dutch. And the DRTS has generous donors and was able to fund the project. And, you know, I can't say all the other factors in God's providence that brought it to happen, but those are some of them. The publisher? Yep, RHB. That's right up Beatty Street. He's, That's right. He was called to bring to the world Reformed experiential Calvinism, and that's what our master is. Yeah, let me tell you something. I don't think it's a secret, but it is quite profound. Dr. Beakey encourages me with this. Michael, I believe that this is the most important work that I will do in my life. And I think, well, it's definitely the most important work I'll do in my life. <laughs> so if he thinks that, given all that man does, it's quite a, it's quite a vote for this book. Yes, Brenda? Yes, and it's coming out again. Oh. The, the original edition is not in print anymore. It's easily available online. But it is coming out again in Dutch. There is a, a Dutch group that's doing it. And I had a friend pull up their introduction, a friend who knows Dutch, I don't, sadly. But, and he read it through for me and gave me an idea of what they're doing. It's basically a heavy edit and modernization of the Dutch, the original Dutch. There are a lot of spelling differences now in modern Dutch, for example. So from, from your having, you're typing it out, mm -hmm. the translation, then it goes next to... Where I actually receive a type translation and I edit it. Um, Todd does that. Yeah, Todd Rester okay. wrote the translation. I edit it. I give it back to him. He approves or changes my changes. <laughs> and then Dr. Beakey and I, after that, do the final editing in preparation for printing. Once we're satisfied with the text, it's typeset, and then after that is proofreading. So is, is Dr. Beakey a Latinist at all, or, he, or he's looking mostly at English? He knows some Latin, but not, yeah, he's not looking closely at the translation right. as a translation. He's looking at the English? That's right. He's mostly the English editor. I'm really the one Latin editor. With your editing of the Latin, are you working off of just the photographs of the Latin original, or are you working with your typeset Latin edition? I'm working with the photographs. Now, this is interesting. It's a bit new in this age of online books, but it's typically not done this way in the past. You would have a Latin edition first before you have a Latin translation. So we shouldn't expect a critical Latin edition anytime. No. <laughs> However, there is, I found this out, a... Um, transcribed edition online. Oh, is it? But it's part of a very expensive database that even I don't have access to. Maybe it'll be printed one day. It's not, no, it's uh, an Edwards database through Yale, I believe. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah, Dr. Neely showed it to me and my jaw almost hit the floor. My jaw also hit the floor when he showed me his personal copy of 
the theoretical practical theology. I mean, I'm looking at pretty good PDF scans, but it's nothing like holding a book. And he, you know, doesn't even look online. He just pulls the book off his shelf. Anyway, one day, one day, when I'm a real scholar. <laughs> yes. The section on the regeneration that was published, um, you mentioned the controversy over, over that subject. So when are you talking, when was that published and who published it? 18th century. Uh, I think it's later 18th century, but don't quote me on that. I don't remember who published it then. Now, I don't remember either, but I could find it. It's on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, just look up Treatise on Regeneration, Ben Maastricht. It's there. It's got so a pink cover. What, what was the controversy? On regeneration, and I couldn't tell you more about it. Okay. Uh, there is, I believe, an introduction in this new edition that gives you some of the background. Yeah. Um, with the last 10%, is, is, is the plan to publish that as the last thing you publish? You're basically just working through it on order? That's the last volume. We'll also add to that volume a co comprehensive index or a few indexes okay. for the whole set. And you mentioned that in the original it's basically just the outline, but that RHB is thinking they might do something slightly different with it. Did I hear that right? No. What I mean is we'll probably print it in paragraph form oh, okay, gotcha. where he has it indented. Okay, gotcha. And we'll see. I, we haven't made that decision yet. It's just a question of space and visual effect. So. What is the process of hunting down the sources that Maastricht quotes? A lot of sources are not yeah. translated. I would say, tongue-in-cheek, that the process is I leave a comment and Todd does it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not entirely true. I have to, for translation's sake, often to look up sources. And it largely involves finding the source through the Post-Reformation Digital Library. PRDL.org, great site. Yeah. And it really is amazing how little work it takes me to find these 17th century books. We live in an amazing age. I'm convinced this is, the internet is a greater invention than the printing press, and we need to pray by God's grace we'll see a greater reformation come through this tool. Yeah. Amen. It's really quite amazing. I mean, now we can, without cost, access all these excellent 17th century books. Don't even need to reprint them. Yeah, we can talk about that later. But, <laughs> but I do think it's important for some to learn Latin. And I honestly think, I'll plea, and anyone that's listening to me online, I, I think it's a better use of the church's resources to teach a few ministers, a few young ministers, for the future, Latin, than to try to translate every book. Because I can tell you personally, this translation process is extraordinarily expensive and difficult, and I make no claims that this is a perfect translation, though I do think it's a very good one. But it won't do for you what the original did, and it's probably a better long-term focus to get a few of our ministers able to read all these books than to have probably not many more of our ministers read a few of them in English. So there's my plea. Any further questions before we have lunch? We didn't get into volume two, but that's just fine because that will fit after lunch. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter at Fontes or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org.
www.ofgrowthhub.org and scroll to get involved.